Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Sean the Baptist Live. It is December 12th, and December, it is December 9th, and we are happy to, to have you with us uh, here tonight. And uh, certainly, we uh, look forward to your Advent questions tonight. We are here, of course, in the, uh, the beautiful season of, of Advent. We have passed into the second week, and I was noticing the other day that... Uh, well, quite frankly, unlike uh, Lent, uh, this uh, is something that, uh, well, it uh, Lent goes for a long time. And it seems like by the time we get to Easter, it's like, oh my gosh, uh, we just are so grateful that uh, Easter is here because Lent has been so long. Well, not the case here for Advent. It's the second week of Advent, and, um, well, quite frankly, it's almost Christmas, you know, so we, uh, we got to get serious about what we're doing for Advent, and certainly I'd like to, to hear tonight some of... Uh, maybe what it is that uh, you are doing for Advent. Um, lots of people talk during Lent about certain things that they give up and things like that. We don't we don't typically give things up, I guess, for for Advent. Although it's a somewhat penitential season, um, rather we we tend to like take things on, like uh, going to church more and getting to confession and some extra prayers and reading the scriptures. And uh, probably a lot of you are doing some kind of like Advent wreath or something at home or maybe an advent calendar um you know one of the uh, advent calendars we used to do that all the time in my family growing up but there was none of this chocolate stuff i mean what's the deal with a a chocolate advent calendar we just opened little windows and there were scripture verses in there okay when i was growing up you couldn't wait to read the bible that was under that little flap each day now you get chocolate i don't know what's up with that people have gone soft Give me a little chocolate if you want to, though. That's that's fine. Um, but tonight uh, we we are going to look at some of your your questions about um, where we're at in Advent, um, and and some of the traditions. I would like to put a little plug out there, as as always. Uh, whenever you uh, click on something on Sean the Baptist, I get a chance to invite you to like the Sean the Baptist page. It is my kind of public page. If if ever Facebook uh, kind of gets hostile anymore, uh, I don't I don't know the. My personal page might go away, and I might just use the professional page for ministry, or whatever. So be sure that uh, even if you are my friend under the Father Sean P. Junick account, uh, that that you like Sean the Baptist and uh, follow, like. Uh, some of you have been invited. Some of you follow, but you don't like. I don't know what's up with that. Why would you follow me if you don't like me? I don't know. Probably you're like my mom and just doesn't quite know how to do it because I think she's one that doesn't like me. Uh, I I'm pretty sure my mom likes me just not on Facebook. She's maybe just shy about it. She doesn't want to be public. That's fine. Not everyone's relationship status has to be published on Facebook all the time. But if you would be so inclined as to publish your like of me, uh, feel free to like the Sean the Baptist page. I would much appreciate that. And it would allow me to, to do some other things uh, with the, uh, the Facebook platform, as it were. Uh, so with that having been said, um, let's give you a little preview tonight about... Um, what it is that uh, I'd like to to talk about is I I see we've got a, a number of people on there and I am I'm happy to get to your your questions as they come up so just uh, feel free to to go with that but in the meantime uh, a little preview I guess you'd call it um, I I put on the uh, the uh, description for tonight's show I suppose a, a little bit of a a tease there and. Uh, you know, don't worry, uh, Father Kent O'Connor, if, if you are, are watching, he is always one that uh, worries about uh, the song Santa Baby coming on. Um, I will not sing it, uh, but I, I did uh, have to throw a little shout out to the, uh, the Santa Baby song with the Santa Baby Lawn, Santa Babylon. Uh, Santa just does mean holy. So, Holy Babylon? Um, yeah, I, I suppose so. Uh, but we're going to be talking a little bit tonight about um, some important part of Jewish history. You're like, oh, Jewish history? What the heck? We're Christians. Didn't we get rid of all that stuff? Uh, no. Uh, in fact, to be Catholic is to be spiritually Jewish, actually. So, uh, you got to get used to our Jewish history because you really can't understand... Christianity, especially Catholicism, without knowing Judaism, and quite frankly, you really can't understand what the heck Advent and Christmas is about unless you're a Jew. Uh, so, good news, if you're Catholic, you're part Jewish. That's 
our heritage. So yeah, you got to know about our our Jewish history. And and the good news is is tonight I'm I'm going to help you do that. And there are a couple key events in Jewish history that just keep coming up over and over, and they're all throughout the scriptures. So a lot of times, you know, we'll be uh, you'll be looking at the scriptures and and wondering why the heck they keep bringing this up. Uh, the the first event that is so major that it just comes up all over the place uh, is portrayed in the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. And this is, of course, the story of Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea. Okay, now most of us are probably familiar with that Bible story. Sometimes we Catholics get made fun of, like, oh, you Catholics don't know your Bible. Yeah, we do. We know that the stories, we might not be able to quote chapter and verse, the story of Moses and the Exodus from Egypt is in Exodus. Okay, but um, we know the story of Moses. At least we've seen the movie, probably. And uh, we know about the parting of the Red Sea. Well, that's a big event that uh, the Psalms that we read talk about that. David is still talking about it when he's writing the Psalms. It's, it's written through a lot of the history of the Old Testament, parting of the Red Sea. But the other big event that you need to know of uh, is is kind of two events, but uh, one one big one that we're going to talk about tonight, and that is the exile. Now I say the exile; it's kind of like talking about the Inquisition. First of all, if every if anyone ever asks you, yeah, what about the Inquisition? If you want to diffuse that right away, just ask them which one, uh, because there are multiple Inquisitions, and if you talk about the Inquisition, it means you don't know what the heck you're talking about. Um, so if we talk about the exile. Well, there are actually two exiles, and there's like, well, there's two different parts of the first one, and uh, three different parts of the, the second one, and multiple returns, and so, uh, yeah. We'll talk about the exile, but really there are two of them, and uh, we'll get into both of those tonight. But um, it is an event that is, is so big that it, it too, is, is in the Psalms, uh, and it is particularly not just uh, an event in history, but it's a, a theme, really, uh, unfortunately, in the history of Israel, of God saving them, like we see with Moses and the, the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, and God choosing them. And they promise, like, God, we'll, we'll be your people. We'll, we'll do what you want, and we see that you are so powerful uh, that we'll do it. And they don't. And so what normally happens is God has to punish them, and normally the result of, of that is that he allows them to be uh, taken over by other people and not be free. And uh, that happens over and over and over. And normally they get in trouble, and so God will raise up a judge. And there's a whole book of Judges you can read about, which essentially the, the story of the book of Judges uh, is, yay, we'll serve God. Thank you for giving us this judge to lead us and help us. And oh, look at that, a golden calf. We'll worship pagan gods. And oh, those pagan gods are nice. And oh, now the pagans are taking us over. And now oh, we're prisoners. And God, please help us. And oh, thank you for sending a judge to help us and decide what's right and bring us back to the moral path. And we'll never fail again. And thank you, God, for this beautiful judge. And oh, wow, what if we sacrifice our children to idols? They'll protect us, right? We don't, the, the true God isn't going to help us. So we'll kill our children. That will help oh, wait, they're taking us over, and now we have no children, and this is terrible. Oh, God, help us. And God sends a judge, and like 12 of those, just over and over and over. And it's just constant. Uh, really, the whole story of the exodus from Egypt. I mean, okay, oh, here's Moses. We're so happy, a savior. Yay, we're leaving Egypt. Can't wait to get out of Egypt. We've been slaves, and oh, there's this Red Sea in the way. Now we're all going to die. And here comes Pharaoh. And we wish that we were back in Egypt. And Moses, you're terrible. And how could you do this to us, Moses? And we're going to go serve Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods because that was so much better. Oh, look, the Red Sea is open for us. Oh, wow, I guess God is pretty cool. We'll go through. And we get on the other side. And, oh, look, Pharaoh is dead. Hmm, we'll never doubt God again. God is super trustworthy. We'll never doubt him. And oh, we're hungry. Wait, where are we going to get food? And where are we going to get water? And oh, curse God and curse Moses. We wish we were back in Egypt. At least we had food and water. And so God brings water from a rock. And he rains down food from heaven in the form of manna. And he sends them quail, Kentucky Fried Chicken for dinner every night. And they're like, oh my gosh, God is so good. Praise God and praise Moses. Yay, we'll never doubt God again. And oh my gosh, wait, where's the promised land? Where, where do we go? And oh, 
oh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make a golden calf. That's what we'll do because Moses is is gone and he's probably gone forever. And and what are we gonna? Let's worship a golden calf. This is our God. This is our God that brought us out of Egypt. Curse God and curse Moses. They abandoned us. And God has to call down fire from hell, heaven, and he kills off all the people that were revolting. And Moses smashes the Ten Commandments, and it's all ugly. But they turn back and like, oh God, we are so sorry. We really messed it up this time. Uh, we'll never, we'll never doubt you again. And so he sends them Joshua, and eventually, ugh. this is this is essentially the story. Over and over and over and over. Okay, so uh, the reason why the exile that we're going to talk about tonight to first Assyria and then in Babylon is so important because it's kind of, uh, since the crossing of the Red Sea, it's kind of the most definitive sort of uh, moment of intervention of God allowing the foreign powers to come in and take over. And uh, really, it's important for us in Advent because so much of the, the Advent story has to do with the exile and the return and the longing to get back home. They say that really there's only a couple different great stories in the, the history of the world. And one of the themes of the great stories, uh, there, there's like the hero story, uh, but one of the great stories is uh, the desire to go home and the struggles that it takes to go home. Now, that's often a struggle for us at Christmas time when, when people are, you know, catching planes and trains and automobiles to, to get home. Uh, there's lots of movies made about that, including one that includes, well, planes, trains, and automobiles. Um, but even as, as difficult as, as that is, uh, the story of Israel trying to get home, it's... It's one that is, is so powerful that it actually continues to this day. Much of the, the fighting in the Holy Land right now is um, the state of Israel and the people who are here to that claim, well, this is our home. And the Palestinians who were displaced when the uh, Israelis came back after World War One and World War II, uh, so well, this is our home. And so we've got refugees and people trying to get home. Well, that's going to be essentially uh, not just the story of Israel, uh, which we'll see very concretely tonight but that's that's really our story all of us right now at this very moment are trying to get home I mean, that's that's really it because as paul says our citizenship is in heaven our true home is in heaven so i think part of the the reason that these these great narratives these great stories exist these lines that keep coming up over and over is because it's built in our hearts by god get home why is, why is it such a powerful story to, to have this desire to want to get home? Well, it's because we're all on a journey. We're all pilgrims heading towards heaven, and we want to get home, to our real home. And so I think when we can see this lived out in smaller ways in these stories, that it speaks to our, our hearts in uh, an important way. Um, so without, without further ado, uh, a little bit of... The, the history that you need to know. I talked about that exodus from Egypt. Okay, that, that's about 1250 BC. Okay, 1250 uh, BC. Now, if you can't remember that, here is probably the most important date to kind of set the, the context of the Old Testament. If you remember one date uh, in the, the Old Testament that is easy to remember, remember that David becomes king about 1000 BC. Okay, and I have to do this too. There are times when I for, forget the dates and I, I don't know uh, which which date is is what. And, and so I myself actually will have to look it up, but I can always remember David became king in, in 1000. Okay, uh, so there is uh, an important one to remember. And, and in case we forget the uh, kingdom of David uh, David is the one who finally, uh, after everyone invades the promised land with crossing the Red Sea and all that, uh, David is the one who finally establishes basically a, a peaceful rule from his capital in Jerusalem. Um, he is the, the greatest of all the kings of Israel. Uh, he is the one you need to know. 1000 BC, King David. And I say that this is a, a, a great time in the history of Israel because... Uh, they finally have their land. Uh, way, way back, about 1850 BC or so, 
Abraham is, is on that exact spot in Jerusalem, right where the Temple Mount would be in Mount Moriah, and God promises him that land. Well, but then he, he goes away, and then, of course, we know that they get eventually enslaved in, in Egypt when Jacob and his sons go down there, to, and Joseph is sold into slavery, and Joseph and the Amazing Tentacolor Dreamcoat and all that. Um, they don't actually get the promised land that God promised them in 1850 uh, until about 850 years later in 1000 BC with King David. So there's peace at the time of David. And it's important that we kind of keep in the back of our mind, God makes a covenant with David. He promises him that not only are you going to have this land, uh, but an heir of the house of David is, is going to rule forever. David's dynasty will never end. Uh, and give you a little little kind of idea of what the, the territory of David would have looked like. Take a look at this. So this is David's kingdom. You kind of see that the Mediterranean Sea there is on the, the left, and that's the, uh, the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt there in the lower left-hand corner, and that's all of Saudi Arabia going down towards the right. So you can see that purple area. That is... Uh, basically modern-day Israel, Jordan, Syria, and almost up to Turkey and a little bit of Iraq. So that's a, a pretty extensive area, actually, for David to, to be in control of. He was a, a formidable king, although his, his empire is small compared to, like, what the, the Assyrian Empire or certainly the Roman Empire will be or, or even just... Uh, under Alexander the Great, when he, he conquers most of the, that whole area uh, for Greece. So it's a sizable empire, but in the, the history of the world, it's kind of uh, not all that big, actually. So that gives you an idea of, of what we're talking about with, with David. Now, I say that David is a really great king. We know he has his faults, um, and there is peace, but boy, it is short-lived. And here's maybe one of the things that if, if you think back to the, uh, the intro there on the, the history, anytime Israel is getting it right, uh, it's pretty short-lived. They, they normally screw it up pretty quickly. So, so David has this incredible reign. Uh, he dies, and of course his son Solomon. Most of us, if we know anything about Solomon, we know that he is incredibly wise uh, because we know that Solomon famously... When he becomes king, he's somewhat young after David dies, and God says, all right, what do you want? I'll give you anything. And Solomon says, well, I'm, I'm young and inexperienced. I'm not like David, my father. Uh, I don't know how to govern your people, so what I want is a wise heart. Give me wisdom. And God's like, that's cool. You have chosen wisely, ah, and you'll be wise. So he must have already been a little wise to choose wisdom uh, because he gets it. And so God says there will never be anyone wiser than, than you. And so Solomon is known for being this incredible king who judges things. And, you know, the story of cutting a baby in half and things like that didn't happen because uh, Solomon prevented it from happening because he was wise. Um, so if we think of Solomon, we think, well, yeah, he's a, he's a good dude. I mean, he would have been a good king, right? I mean, David was great. Solomon was great. Yeah, well, Solomon starts out great. That whole wisdom bit, that's pretty cool. Good job, Solomon. You asked for the right thing. Unfortunately, uh, it's, again, short-lived. Because by the time Solomon dies, he's done terrible things. He's got like 700 wives. Uh, yeah, that's not good. Why does he have all those wives? Because he's making allegiances with foreign powers who, who get him to worship foreign gods, even gods that sacrifice babies to their pagan gods, and it's a huge mess. And whenever things get in a mess spiritually, God allows them to get into a mess temporally as well. And so Solomon has his, his rightful son, Rehoboam, who's supposed to succeed him, but other Jeroboam, uh, he wants to be king, and so they're going at it. And finally, all they ask is, like, look, Roboam, you can be king. Just don't raise our taxes. <laughs> Seems simple. And Roboam says, you know what? Because you wanted me not to raise your taxes, I'm going to double your taxes. <sighs> not, not wise. And so what happens? The, uh, the kingdom of David, that territory, the kingdom of Solomon, 
splits into. So let me give you a, a little taste of, of what happens here. Here is a look at the divided kingdom. So you can see it's, first of all, a little bit smaller territory overall than, than David had because they lost a little bit. But then this is important to, to understand that uh, when we talk of Israel, um, today we think of like the modern state of, of Israel, the political borders that were created um, artificially. Well, when the kingdom splits in two, you've got 10 tribes in the north, and they become the kingdom of Israel. And then two tribes in the south, uh, primarily Judah, become the kingdom of Judah. Judah is where we get the word Jew from eventually. And Israel, um, it's not the state of Israel. It's the northern 10 tribes after the split. And um, basically it goes uh, all the way up there to the north of what would have been Solomon's kingdom. So um, that's what it looks like when the kingdom splits. Now, if you want to remember a date uh, on this, this is 922 BC. So only, only 78 years uh, after David becomes king and has the greatest kingdom ever, it already starts to fall apart and we've got this uh, divided kingdom. Okay, so there's division and this is where the, the exile comes in because a house divided its, against itself can't stand. Uh, yeah, Jesus said that, uh, but it applies here too uh, because what happens is there's not really a, a single good king in the entire northern kingdom. Because uh, what happens? Well, they turn away from God again. Uh, remember the whole golden calf incident with, with Moses, you know, leaving the, uh, the captivity in Egypt? What do they do? They get on the other side and Moses disappears on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. What do they do? They make a golden calf, which is uh, one of the gods of the pagans. And they worship that. Well, what do they do up in north in Israel? Well, the king up there, Jeroboam, says, you know, this law that we've got about having to go to the temple in Jerusalem and, and worship there for like Passover and things, um, isn't good. I'm my own kingdom up here in Israel. I don't want my people going down to the kingdom of Judah. They might just like it there and stay. And now the temple down in Jerusalem is, is getting all the money. So as is a problem today, control of Jerusalem is an issue. Um, Jeroboam in the north had an interesting solution. He says, uh, yeah, the temple in Jerusalem, forget about it. We're going to create our own places of worship up here in the north. And so I, it, it would be crazy if it weren't true. But what did they do? He makes not one golden calf, but two golden calves. I know, it is, is ridiculous. He puts one up in Dan in the north and one in uh, Shechem in the south. And uh, yeah, he, he doubles down on what the Israelites got wrong uh, after crossing the Red Sea. I mean, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. The strange thing is that the Jews did study history. It was written all over the place. They Remember I said they keep singing the song of Moses over and over, isn't it great? Yeah. They obviously totally forgot that because they build two golden calves in the northern uh, area of Israel. And they're like, hey, while we're worshiping those, let's worship a bunch of other pagan gods too. Why not? You know, more gods, the better. Um, well, again, whenever you get far away from God spiritually, uh, God's punishment for this is not normally to call down fire and brimstone from heaven. What happens is if you have no religious coherence. The great countries in the world have always cohered around religion because worldly things will never be enough to inspire people for very long. But otherworldly things, that can inspire people. And when Israel was inspired by being chosen by God and that they would worship him alone, they were strong and they were politically strong. When they start worshiping a bunch of pagan gods, and what are they trying to do? They're trying to make alliances again. They're trying to fit in with the, and go with the flow and, and see how we can get along. Let's go along to get along. Uh, let's make compromises. And they compromise and they compromise all in the name of let's be safe. 
let's be safe and compromise rather than stand up and fight. We'll just lie down and compromise with our neighbors and that way they'll just leave us alone because they'll just love us so much because we compromise and we're just loving them. Uh, no, that just makes you fundamentally weak and eventually someone comes in, attacks you and takes you over who cares more about something than you do. And that's exactly what happens to the Northern Kingdom of Israel. The largest other power in the world at that time becomes the Assyrians. Uh, not to be confused with modern day Syria, uh, Assyria is a little bit uh, to the east of what modern day Syria would be. So Northern Iraq, that kind of area. Well, the Assyrians come in and what do they do? They just take over everybody in the Northern Israel and they're like, okay, um, we're, we're taking you captive. We're conquering you. Ah, oh, you thought you were a friend. Nope. Uh, and what do they do? They then bring in five different Gentile ethnic groups to intermarry with anybody that's left. Um, and so here's a, here's a little map of the Assyrian exile. So you see uh, Assyria is kind of in the, uh, the center right. Uh, this would be modern day Iraq, basically. Uh, and I said there's a couple different exiles here. So there's a, a couple different times that they get taken uh, out of there. You can, you can see those in the different colored arrows. Um, but basically, this, this starts in, uh, what is about uh, 734 and is finished 722, or this one, this one has it 715. Um, so it, it takes a number of years. So just the Assyrian exile, as this one is called, um, it's, it's several waves of deportation. And then they bring in like five Gentile ethnic groups so sometimes you'll hear about the uh, you'll hear about the the lost tribes of Israel, like the the ten lost tribes. This comes up sometimes in, in Mormonism because, like Joseph Smith will say, like, yeah, the ten northern tribes they uh, they left Israel and and they made their way to North America. No, that is that is not how they got lost. They they didn't like leave Israel and like not have a map or a compass. They got lost because they, they intermarried uh, and they were lost to history because their race no longer existed because they intermarried with the, the Gentiles who came in and those who were deported out went into the pagan lands and just disappeared uh, into the native populations. So that's how they got lost. They did, they did not make some incredible journey across Asia into some land bridge into North America. That was, uh, no. Um, so this is the uh, Assyrian exile. If you want to remember a date, 722 or 721, I guess, is, is about a date that you can remember for the Assyrian exile. So it's, uh, I suppose you'd say it's, it's lesser known, but uh, in some ways the Assyrian exile is probably more important because that's 10 out of the 12 tribes. So most of the exile, if you want to refer to it, happened uh, 721 with the uh, Assyrians. However... The, uh, the bigger, badder, more important, more well-known exile is the Babylonian exile. And hence the Santa Babylon uh, title of this thing. Uh, because, well, Babylon and the Babylonian exile is, is kind of the big important one. This is the one that, kind of like the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, gets sung about in the Psalms. You know, you've got... By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept. Why were they weeping? Because they were remembering Zion. That's one of the geographical locations, Mount and Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Uh, so here's what happens. The tribes that are left in the south, uh, they get a good king. Um, they've got Hezekiah and Josiah. And, you know, they, they try to do some some good things down there. In fact... They, uh, when uh, Josiah takes over, uh, he actually returns right worship. He, he takes care of all the, the pagan stuff that had been going on, uh, tears down all the shrines to pagan gods, emphasizes worship of the one true God, uh, and himself becomes a, a regular practicing, actual devout Jew. Um, sets a good example for his people. He governs wisely. Uh, and so what happens? Yeah, they have some strength. Um, 
Now, at the time of Hezekiah, the uh, Babylonians try to come in and attack. Uh, Sennacherib comes over and basically wipes out most of the kingdom of Judah, but not Jerusalem, uh, through some miracle of God. Uh, he is not able to take Jerusalem. In fact, this is attested to by uh, his own account. He, he wrote down his, his conquest in uh, what's called a stele, or a, think of a, a, a pillar with stone writing on it. Uh, and he, he says, like, yeah, I took over. But I, there's no mention of taking Jerusalem because he, he didn't uh, because of a plague or something that broke out when the, the king of Judah prayed and got, heard his prayer. Um, this is in the, the book of Isaiah. Yeah, you can read about that as well as the book of Kings. Um, and so speaking of Isaiah, our great prophet, this is why it especially has to do with Advent. So if you're wondering, like, where, where do we get to Advent? Uh, where, what's Christmas? Well, recognize the name Isaiah, the great prophet. Uh, he is active at this time, right? Before the Babylonian exile, and there's the writing of the book of Isaiah continues through the exile and even the return. Uh, so it's uh, probably multiple people um, writing the book of Isaiah, probably three people, uh, we believe, at different times. But you'll see real quick here how Isaiah, uh, the Advent Isaiah that we know, it's the prophet that's active at the time of the Babylonian exile as well. Uh, also like Jeremiah uh, at, at that time and Ezekiel. Uh, so the, the major prophets uh, talking at this time. So they get uh, strong under returning to right worship, but it's pretty short-lived. And in fact, uh, this, the next king undoes all the good stuff. They go back to worshiping pagan gods. And if this sounds like a broken record, it should, because this is what happens over and over. Yeah, God, we'll worship you. Uh, take it back. No, we won't. We'll worship foreign gods. Um, and yeah, unless we look at that and say, stupid, uh, we do the same thing over and over. And that's why it's so important that we know this story as our story, because we do the same thing. And if you want to know what's going on in the world, why God is doing what he's doing, why God is allowing to happen what he's happening, well, start by just looking back and saying, huh, how are we like the Israelites? Do we do this stuff? Do we worship things other than the true God? Has worship of God become corrupted? Do we need to restore worship if we want to be stronger? Hmm. Thoughts to think about. We'll get there. So we get to 587 BC. And finally, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, there's a name you might know, uh, does manage to invade and conquer Jerusalem. He destroys the temple. Now that is a, a big, big deal. Uh, I've talked a bit here already about uh, proper worship, and we're, we'll get into this more. But for the Jews, worship is, is not like sit at home and, and watch praise songs on your TV. Uh, worship meant animal sacrifice. And there was only one place that you could offer animal sacrifice, and that was at the temple. And it had to be the official priests, Levites, doing it uh, at the approved altar and in the approved temple. This is partly why in the north they, they do their own thing, because they don't want people going down there doing that. Uh, so worship was a, a very specific thing for a Jew, and that's, that's why we as Catholics do the crazy things we do, uh, because we didn't make up what we're doing. We were doing what we've always done from the time of Abraham. And so the sacrifices are offered there. Worship in the temple is the center of Jewish life. As we'll see at the time of Jesus, when, when he goes to Jerusalem, uh, it, it was still true there. And to some extent, the desire to worship on the Temple Mount and rebuild the temple is the center of uh, Jewish expectation to this day in, in the Holy Land, which creates so much trouble. Um, so it's been God's plan for a long, long time that proper worship would be offered to him. So not only do the uh, remnants of the kingdom of Judah get exiled from the promised land. So they don't have the land anymore. They get sent to Babylon. But the last thing they see as they're leaving is the ruins of the temple. Nebuchadnezzar knocked it, burned it all down, gone, destroyed. Uh, and the, the line of King David, gone. Remember that promise to, to David? Hey, David, you're my son. I love you, says God. Your dynasty will never end. A son of your line will always rule on your throne over my people. 
Cool. Uh, except it only lasted a couple hundred years. Not so good, God. Are you faithful or what? Yeah, at the time of the Babylonian exile, the, the last king had all his sons dragged before him, and then the Babylonians killed every one of his sons and then gouged out his eyes so that the last thing he would see before he went blind was the slaughter of all his sons, and then he was taken away in chains to Babylon where he dies in exile. Not a pretty story. You can see why this kind of sticks out. Uh, now, in, in fairness, it might be the kind of story you would say, let's not talk about that. Oh no, they got it so wrong that they really wanted to talk about it. Like, let's not forget this. <laughs> this is what happens when we're not good. When we don't worship the true God, we will lose the land and we will lose the temple and we will lose our kingship. All those things are gone because they were not worshiping the true God. Let that sink in for, for us today as a foreshadowing of either where we're at or where we, we might be heading. Okay, so they get taken off to Babylon. Now, the good news is, I mentioned the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah knew all this would happen. And so he actually, he warns them and says, all right, um, if, if you worship pagan gods, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get taken over by the Babylonians. I mean, he tells them flat out. But he also tells them the exile will last 70 years. So that's, that's actually a little bit of good news. Like the, the 10 northern tribes, remember I said they got exiled? They did not return. There is, there is no return of the, the northern tribes because they didn't return. They're, they're gone and lost to intermarriage, not to North America. Okay. In the south, the Babylonian exile comes to an end. And here's a good example of why it's good to pray for our political leaders because Cyrus becomes king in Persia. And you know what he does? He takes over the Babylonians. Cyrus conquers the Babylonians. And unlike the Babylonians and the Assyrians, who when, when they conquer someone, they just destroy everything, like destroy the temple. Um, Cyrus was smarter. He's like, um, that will probably make enemies. I know what I'll do. I will, uh, I'll honor the people I take over and uh, make their life as good as possible. And maybe they'll like me and not try to fight against me and be subject to me willingly. Uh, and so that's what Cyrus does. And amazingly, um, in about 538 BC, so 70 years after the exile, Cyrus says, you know what? Jews that are here in exile, I want you to go back to Jerusalem. And you know what? Take take up a collection before you go. Get lots of gold and money. And you know what? I, I will even, out of the, the funds of the royal treasury, I will pay to, to fund the rebuilding of your temple. I want you to go back to your home and I want you to rebuild your temple. What, what was Cyrus a follower of the God of the Israelites? No, I'd never even heard of him before. But here's a king who thought, you know what, the more gods, the better. Maybe these Israelites, they got a God, I got a God. The more gods I can have on my side, the better. Uh, and I wanna make peace with these Israelite people. So why not have some friends out on the Western part of my empire? So he sends them back and he pays them money to rebuild the temple. So it's important to note here the, the order of things. While they're in Babylon, they do write that, that song like, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept as our captors asked us for songs. It says they wanted, sing to us the songs of, of Zion. And it's sad. It's like, how can we sing the songs of the Lord in, in, in exile? Like, no, we, we need to be back in Jerusalem to, to offer God right worship. And they start to realize we're, we're here because we, we messed up. We are being punished for not worshiping God correctly. So in one of the greatest moments in Jewish history, when they get to return from exile, a, a pitiful little remnant of, of what left, but when they get back, guess what the first thing they do is? You're like, well, they're surrounded by a bunch of other foreign powers, so I bet they build the walls around uh, the city to protect themselves. Uh, no, that would be an earthly smart kind of thing to do. But this time they realized, you know what? Trying to make peace with world powers. We never had problems with world powers when we worshiped God correctly. So you know what we're gonna do? We are gonna put first and foremost, A number one on the to-do list, correct worship of God. So the very first thing they do, right off the boat, they walked across a desert so there's no boat, 
but right off their little sandals full of sand is they said, there are the ruins of the temple. Let's weep over it, and then let's get to work. We're going to rebuild it. And so eventually, after multiple returns, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, you can read those books of the scripture, they rebuild the temple. Okay, let that sink in. They finally get it. This is, this is where the light bulb goes on. And they're like, okay, we got exiled uh, because we didn't worship God correctly. We got overtaken by foreign powers because we didn't worship God correctly. We're going to worship God as he asked to be worshipped this time. We're going to do exactly what it says in the law. And they actually find a scroll of the law in the ruins of the, the temple, uh, so to speak. And, and so they, they start reading the law. And it actually says everybody starts weeping. They are crying because they hear God's words and the law and they realize we are not doing it. Okay, why is our life going badly? Why we get exiled? Because we didn't follow the law. We didn't do what God asked us to do. So why why not get exiled? Why? That was actually merciful. God could have just killed us. But he taught them a lesson in exile. So they rebuild the temple and they reinstitute the law. Now, that's about 515 that the, the second temple is finally completed. This is the, the temple that would have stood at the time of Jesus. So there, there are two temples. There's Solomon's temple that Nebuchadnezzar destroys in about 587. And then there's the second temple built in about 515 on the return. Let me, let me now kind of apply this to uh, what we might be doing during Advent and what this is all about. Uh, because the prophet Isaiah that I mentioned, he writes throughout all this. And so many of the times the readings that we have during Advent... Uh, they they speak to us uh, from a context of exile and return to to Babylon. Um, so, for instance, one of the the famous prophecies of Isaiah that we read during Advent: "A shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse." All right, that you know, we're like, what the heck is that? Uh, see my morning message uh, from last week. Oh, Advent stump. I recommend that to you. Uh, check the morning message and subscribe to that if you haven't. Morning message, I five minutes every morning. But what is this stump of Jesse? Well, this, Jesse is the father of David. So uh, the, the tree that's spoken of here that is a stump, it, it's supposed to be the family tree of King David. Remember, God made that cool promise to David. Your dynasty, your family tree will go on forever. Well, at the time of Isaiah, who is in exile, it's a stump. Remember, Last king, blinded, done. Yeah, so the family tree looks to be in pretty bad shape. Isaiah is saying, yeah, okay, it looks bad. Yeah, there's exile. Yeah, it, it's, it's not good. But God is faithful to his promises. So it looks like the tree is dead. It looks like, pack it up. God's not faithful to his promise. God, no, no, no. There'll be a shoot, a branch uh, that will come from the stump. Okay, that is a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah that the, the dynasty of David will continue. Where, where do we see another king of David? Not anywhere in the Old Testament, that's for sure. Where do we finally see a new king of David? Where is the shoot that sprouts from the stump of Jesse? Well, you got to fast forward to Palm Sunday in the Gospels where Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives on a donkey. And what are they saying? Hosanna to the son of David. They want to make him king. Jesus is the one who fulfills that prophecy. So the prophecy of Isaiah, although it, it can have fulfillments in Old Testament figures, it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, he is the shoot of the, spout, the stump of Jesse. The family tree blossoms again and does, in fact, go on forever. So um, there's that one. There's also the famous, uh, the virgin will conceive and bear a child. That's, uh, that's referring maybe immediately to some other rulers at the time, but it's it's at the time when the king is trying to make peace with the uh, Assyrians and establish alliances, and um, that comes from that time. Most especially, the verses about prepare the way of the Lord, make straight a highway in the desert, make a highway in the wilderness. What wilderness? The big, huge wilderness that separates Babylon from the promised land. Let me show you a uh, the uh, the Babylonian exile here. So, all right, you see, it kind of goes up 
north and swings back down to Babylon. That's that's because that that area is known as the Fertile Crescent uh, around the Tigris Euphrates River there in Iraq and around. That part was green. If you were to go connect a straight line between Babylon and Jerusalem, it's just a desert. Okay, it's a it's a wilderness. And so when Isaiah is talking about make a highway in the wilderness for God, he's talking about get ready for the return. Get ready to come on home from exile. That's good news. That's why you make a highway. Why 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 do we need a highway? God, we're in exile in Babylon. There's no reason to have a highway. We're stuck here. Like, no, make a highway. God's coming and you're going. It's time to get out of Babylon and get back to your home. Hmm. That's why in Advent now, yes, we think about the coming of Jesus in Bethlehem. God is coming, Emmanuel. But we also think about the fact that we are in some degree in Babylon right now. It is as though we're living in, in exile down here on earth, in this valley of tears, waiting that God would be fully revealed to us in heaven. And the message to us in our earthly exile is, hold on, make a highway towards heaven. Make a, make a stairway to heaven. Yeah, something like that, a stairway to heaven. Uh, because you're leaving, you're getting out of here. You're not gonna stay here. This is like Babylon, this ain't your home. 70 years exile, and then you're out of here. That's what he told the Israelites, and, and that's, that's what he's telling us. Um, this is not your home. And so when they, they do get to come home, uh, here is a little map of the return. Uh, I mentioned uh, kind of two returns. Notice the, the big one there in red, the return of Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the last one. Um, that little area down there, you see Babylon in the right-hand corner, and uh, there, that green area, Nippur, is kind of where the, the uh, exiles are lived around the, the rivers there. And this is all historical. We've got the, the uh, written records and, and evidence of, of that from the time. Okay, so a lot of what Isaiah is, is talking about is that, you, you know, your, your time of, of slavery is coming to an end, that it's exile in Babylon. It's all the good news that Emmanuel, God with us, uh, means that if God is with us, and more importantly, if we are with God, then we'll be free. Then we'll be safe. And so what do they do when they first spiritually make ready the way of the Lord, when they rebuild the temple, when they reinstitute right worship? What happens? They have peace. They're back on their land. They have the temple again. And they're just waiting for a king. Gosh, when will he show up? Well, uh, Daniel... <laughs> Had a, the prophet Daniel had a prophecy about this. Uh, just like there were seven, seven, 70 years of uh, exile in Babylon, he says that there will be 70 years of weeks. So 70 times seven uh, until the Messiah comes. So about 490 years. And if you were to take 490 from the time of that, you get about, well, around year zero. Hmm. Year zero. Wonder what happened in year zero. Now, of course, they don't keep uh, keep track of that. But if uh, year one BC is one year before Christ, year zero, yeah, forget it. Um, in in truth, Jesus was probably born about four or six BC. Sorry, the math is off uh, because of calendar trouble. But um, part of the reason why at the time of Jesus, remember there's, there's stories in Scripture uh, in the Acts of the Apostles where the, the apostles are going out and they're preaching and that the Sanhedrin, uh, Gamaliel, gets up and uh, he's like, look, we've had these Messiah people before. You know, what about this guy? He, he came and he claimed to be the Messiah. He amounted to nothing. He died and his followers all dispersed. And then there was this other guy claiming to be the Messiah. He too came to nothing. Like, wow, was like pretending to be the Messiah? Was that like a thing? Well, the, the prophecy of Daniel was up. Well, it would have been up with, within about uh, a year or so uh, of, that, of that time of Jesus. The coming of Jesus was within the, the seven-year window, I guess you'd call it, of what could have been the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel. So at the time of Jesus, there were lots of people standing up saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one that Daniel foretold, uh, and they were all false, except for one. 
and he's the one that did what he said he would do and continues to do it uh, with all power and glory to this day, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the true heir and ever reigning King of David, who sits on the throne to this day in heaven. So we, we see how, uh, if, if you want a little bit of liturgical trivia, and we're going to talk about liturgy right now, um, at midnight mass, uh, Christmas, and don't ask me what time midnight mass is. I know it's a legit question these days. When is midnight mass? Well, it's probably at 10 p.m. or something. Uh, but before midnight mass, there's the option of of chanting the proclamation of the birth of Christ from the Roman martyrology. It's the the reading of the saints for the day, and of course, the saint for the upcoming day is Jesus Christmas. Um, and it talks about uh, in such and such year of the prophecy of Daniel. So when you hear that know that the Messiah was prophesied to come by Daniel, and essentially it's saying, the time is up. The Messiah is supposed to be here, and lo and behold, Jesus Christ is born of the Virgin Mary, according to the flesh. How about that? God, it's like he, it's like he has a plan. Isn't that amazing? Okay, we'll end uh, tonight, and I, I don't see any questions, but I, I guess that you, you, you've hung on here, and uh, you, you people seem to like it. So I'm going to end with a little bit uh, talking about liturgy, uh, because you know me, I'm a liturgical scholar. I am a liturgist. I love the liturgy, our sacraments in the church. Um, I think that the story of the exile, both of them really, uh, has a great message for us, uh, not just for this advent, but for us as a church right now, because in many ways, uh, the, the church is going through a bit of crisis uh, in a similar way and for similar reasons uh, that the uh, the Jews went through crisis. Now their crisis over and over and over uh, had to do with what? Uh, they turned to worldly things rather than the true God. This is symbolized by the fact that they tried to intermarry with the pagans around them. They tried to get along and fit in with the pagan cultures. In fact, they started this right from the beginning. God tells them, invade the promised land and kill all the people that are there. I mean, that sounds harsh today, but he knew like, you're not gonna, you're not strong enough to do it. If you don't kill them all, you're, you're gonna give up your identity to become them. Well, they don't do it. And what happens from the beginning, they, they just start worshiping false gods, intermarrying all in the name of, hey, let's not be too distinct. Let's not stand out. Let's, let's get along. Now, does that sound familiar? Yeah, I, I mean, just as the Jews were the chosen people, and the whole reason they were chosen was to manifest the salvation of God to the world. It wasn't to be some special people set apart, hey, we're us and you're not. That, that was not the reason Israel was chosen. They were God's chosen people because they were supposed to be a light to the world. Does that sound familiar? Well, that's what the church is supposed to be. Now, where are we getting in trouble today as the church? It's precisely when we're, we're bumping up against the spirit of the world. We want to fit in. And so you can't, these days, at least politically speaking, and in a lot of other ways, you can't tell the Catholics from the rest of the pagans or our other Christian brothers and sisters. We're just identical. Yay, success. Because that's what we wanted. That's, that's not what we should have wanted, but th that's like what the Israelites wanted. They wanted to fit in. They're like, oh, you, you worship this other god? Oh, well, well, we'll we'll stop worshiping our God then, or we'll worship your God too. Yeah, we'll, we'll worship our God, but we'll also sacrifice our children to your pagan God, just so Moloch will take care of us, and we'll worship Baal too. And yeah, I mean, just to fit in, we, we worship a lot of pagan gods, brothers and sisters, right now. Uh, it's sad. I, good. I see some sad faces. I see some, I see some surprised faces. Good. Uh, because at least if we realize it, maybe we can avoid being exiled. Uh, because normally God has to step in and allow you to be taken over when you can't see it for yourself. I mean, there, there's no examples of like, you know, the faction rising up against this. I mean, it's pretty like everyone's in a sleep. You know, think about when the Magi show up after the birth of Jesus in Jerusalem and say, where is the newborn king? They're like, who? Like, yeah, all these Messiah people, the prophecy is up. They don't even know. Like, oh, where is that guy supposed to be born? Uh, I don't know. Let's get out the book. Uh, it says Bethlehem. Eh, nobody's ready. Okay, this is the whole job. The, the whole job of the Israelites is to be ready. 
to be ready for the coming of the Messiah and say, here he is, manifest him to the world. They show up in Jerusalem, the Magi, like, uh, who are you talking about? We, we don't know. Okay, that's, that, it was so messed up that the king is not even Jewish. He himself is from intermarriage. It's all messed up. Okay, well, I think we're a lot like that today. We want political leaders to save us. We want to fit in with the political system. We don't want to stick out. Uh, we, we especially don't want to be persecuted for our faith. We would much rather say, why can't we all just get along? All right, well, there's, there's something, a kernel of truth in that, that in the end, in heaven, we all get along. Um, this is true. But right now, um, Jesus says, love your enemies. That, that means you got some. And you better find out who they are so you can love them, but also so you don't compromise with them and become them. Uh, this is how God normally punishes his people. He lets enemies take them over, and then they become their enemy, and they disappear. Ten northern tribes, lost. Uh, a lot of our Catholic identity and culture has gone the way of the ten northern tribes, and we are lost. Maybe forever. I hope we are more like the exile in Babylon, where we are, in a lot of ways, living far from our home, we are not so united in the worship of God as we should be. Um, yeah, we, we have given up some of the practice of the worship of the true God. And now let me just say that Vatican II and the, the changes to the mass, they're, they're all done by the church with the authority of the church. And of course the mass is valid and everything like that. I don't want to get into that. Um, but there is a, a sense in which maybe not uh, you, you can make your own case if it's because of the changes after Vatican II or not. Point of fact, after Vatican II, maybe because, I don't know. But the way it is right now, there is a big tendency that even when we go to Mass, you have to ask if we're really worshiping God. Or are we worshiping ourselves? I'm like, well, of course we worship God, Father Sean, right? Well, yeah, I'll go to Mass if they play the music I like. And if I don't like the music, I'll go someplace else. And if I don't like the preaching, I'll go someplace else. And oh, I don't like it when they, they use all that Latin or Greek and, and Hebrew. And I don't like this in the mass. And I don't like that. If I could, I'd like to do it this way. Anytime you find yourself saying, you know what? The, the mass isn't quite what I want it to be. Let's change it. Well, changing the manner of worship of God is the number one thing that got people exiled and taken over. Because the truth of worshiping the one true God is that we don't make it up. God told us how he wanted to be worshiped. When the Israelites are in captivity in Egypt, Moses says, let us go into the wilderness and worship our God the way he's asked. They don't ask to leave Egypt. They just want to go worship. And Pharaoh doesn't let them, so they have to leave Egypt. They want to worship. What happens when they start to worship false gods, they get exiled. When they finally get it right, what do they do? They say, okay, enough of us making up our own worship. We are going to do what God said. And how do we know what God said? Look, we've got the law. We will rebuild the temple exactly the way God says to rebuild it. They look at all the measurements and how it's supposed to be. They don't say, okay, now that we get to rebuild the temple, let's come up with our idea of what a nice modern temple would look like. No, they build it exactly the way God said in fact, they lament that it's not quite as good as what Solomon built. Okay, and then they reinstitute the proper worship of God. They don't get back and say, hmm, you know, we don't have a whole bunch of sheep and goats anymore. Instead of sacrificing animals, what if we, what if we sacrifice our thoughts? What if we think happy thoughts about God? Or what if we just sing songs to God instead that we like and throw our hands in the air? No, they, they go back and they sacrifice animals, a lot of them, to purify the new altar. Um, I think it's an important question for us to ask today. Uh, are we worshiping God the way he asked to be worshiped? Okay, and keep in mind that in the history of our Catholic Church, um, we basically did the same thing. Our Mass was the same for about 1,500 years. Uh, so regardless of, of whether Vatican II asked for it or not, and quite frankly, a lot of changes to the liturgy that happened after Vatican II had no basis in Vatican II. People just changed stuff. Um, what I can say is today there is kind of a spirit of uh, at least interest in, okay, this this crazy things I heard about that we did for like 1,500 years that we stopped doing in the 70s. What were those things? Why did we do that? Uh, and I can tell you, if I offer the Latin Mass right now, I'm going to have a church full of young people. So 
much like God raised up Ezra and Nehemiah, I think, to return from exile and to go back to the right worship of God, I think there's a lot of ways today in which we worship ourselves and we are not following God's law, especially the moral law. So one or two things is going to happen. Uh, we are either going to get exiled, maybe permanently, uh, from our land, the United States. I don't know. Uh, somebody more powerful than us is going to take us over if we as a country don't believe in God as the center anymore. Um, that's just the way God works. Okay, maybe that would be the best thing. I mean, Isaiah did pretty good in exile and, uh, you know, wrote about coming back. Maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need a 70-year exile and start over. I don't know. Or we can change and say, you know what? Advent, Jesus is coming back. Uh, he's already come once. We've got everything we need uh, to know what the right thing to do is, just like the Israelites knew what the right thing to do was, and they just didn't do it. Um, we can change. And if we want to change, I suggest we start in exactly the place that the uh, exiles started when they returned. Let's rebuild the temple. Okay, and if, if you've got some ugly modern church that isn't worthy of the worship of God, well, knock it down. Start over. Re rebuild a temple the way God asks that is worthy of the worship of God. If we do that, maybe we'll start to believe that the Eucharist that is celebrated in that building really is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, that this truly is God. Maybe if we honor him present in the tabernacle and we bow down and worship before him and act as if God is present, as in the Holy of Holies in the temple, maybe we'll start to believe this. And then maybe as God did in every case in the history of Israel, when we turn back to God, he will give us peace, safety, and rest from our enemies. That's it. If the world's falling apart, look to how we are worshiping. And I'm, I'm saying that, yes, I know as a liturgical scholar, I always want to look to worship. Save the liturgy, save the world. That's me. But I think there's good biblical precedent for that. If things are going wrong and it looks like we could be exiled, we better look at how we're worshiping God and are we following the law? Because those are the things that lead to exile. So tonight we've talked about the exile. And as I said, there's really two of them. The Assyrian exile uh, after uh, about the year 721. And then the Babylonian exile, the year 587 in the south. Uh, ten northern tribes gone forever. That's one possibility. The southern tribes gone for 70 years, but then back. Or we could accept that the Messiah has come that Jesus has forever perfected the rituals of the old law, given us the holy sacrifice of the mass, given us the right worship of God and the law of love to keep his commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments, says Jesus. So maybe we're headed towards exile. Maybe God allows suffering to happen to shake us up a little bit. I don't know. But I know one thing we cannot go wrong with, regardless of where we're headed if we put the worship of God first and really worship the one true God and not ourselves, if we sacrifice to the one true God and we put his law first, well, that worked for the Babylonian exiles coming back and it'll work for us. So as we continue our Advent journey, brothers and sisters, I invite you to think about those two things, worship and the law. What's the effect of those in your life? Who do you worship? How do you worship? And how do you give God your service through following his moral law? We need those things right now. I pray that this will be a great week. We're coming up to Gaudete Sunday, the rose candle uh, there on our Advent wreaths. A little bit of rejoicing in the darkness of, of winter as we are more than halfway through Advent. Christmas will be here before you know it. Uh, so it's time to get our house in order. Rebuild the temple, then rebuild the walls uh, to give us our identity. Start with your family. How will your family worship? How will your family follow God's law? If we start with one family at a time, we're going to be just fine, no matter what happens around us. I'm Father Sean Tunick, Sean the Baptist, and this has been Sean the Baptist Live for December 9th, 2020, the year that we all look forward to soon ending this terrible exile of 2020, and we can return from Babylon to the normal life of the promised land where we can hug each other once again very soon. God bless you all and good night.